Hello and welcome to Unstress and the Summer Series for 2021. What a year 2020 has been and we have curated some episodes which we think were particularly relevant to what has been going on. I hope you're having a great break. Looking forward to the new year and catching up then. Until then, hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Unstress. I'm Dr. Ron Ehrlich. Children's health, what a topic. I mean, one of the things we should be saying is that children are the canaries in the coal mine. So um, knowing how our kids are actually doing is, I think, a really important reflection on how we are doing as a society health-wise. And um, things are not, as you will hear in this episode, uh, looking all that great. In fact, many of you may have heard the predictions that this generation of young people may be the first generation to not live as long as their parents. Now, that is a a really disturbing um, prediction, to say the least. Whatever the story, we all have lessons to learn about our children's health the causes, and and what to do about it. My guest today is Dr. Lila Mason. Now, Lila is an integrative medical practitioner. She's a specialist paediatrician. She's also happens to be a lactation specialist, and we'll talk about that as well. Lila has written a great book. It's called Children's Health A to Z. And apart from that, she's an educator of both health professionals and the public. Today, she shares some great insights with me Now, in case you're wondering what the term integrative encompasses, an integrative approach looks at underlying causes and the observations that Lila makes about children's health are are just as applicable to us as adults, uh, not just our children. And as a paediatrician and also a public health specialist, she's interested, as I think we all should be, in disease prevention through healthy nutrition and lifestyle. So remember, so many of the diseases we hear about are preventable. And according to the WHO, they involve nutritional and environmental and lifestyle issues. Lila is passionate about treating the whole child as well as supporting the whole family. And within her private practice, she also treats children on the autistic spectrum. She takes a holistic approach to behavioral and learning challenges, as well as allergies and a whole lot of other pediatric health problems. Um, And also we'll touch on some issues around breastfeeding. I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Dr. Lila Mason. Welcome to the show, Lila. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me on your show. Lila, we often, as a society, we congratulate ourselves on living longer, but our kids do reflect how healthy we really are as a society. Uh, What are some of the observations you've made as a paediatrician about children's health? How are we doing? Well, it is true. Overall, we're living longer. But if you look at our children, there are actually more and more health problems, behavior problems, developmental problems coming up. The percentage of children with ADHD, with autism, allergies, even autoimmune disease is going up every single year. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? You know, our genes haven't changed over the last 10, 20, 30 years. But our children really have in their health. If you talk to a teacher who has been teaching for quite a while, they always tell me, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we maybe had one child per age group and 100 kids that had problems. And now we have 5 to 10 in a classroom who who struggle to concentrate, struggle to learn, to get along with other children, you know, all Mm. kinds or have allergies. We didn't used to have schools that needed to be nut-free, but now we do, you Mm. know, and we really need to be very, very careful to protect the children who have allergies. But it is a sign of the times that things are not going so well. And I always like to think like a detective. What is the real cause for this? What's Mm. the reason and what can we change? And I think there are a few things. First of all, we're not eating the kind of food anymore that we used to eat. Not that 30 years ago everybody ate a perfect diet, but children nowadays eat much more processed food. Mm -hmm. If you look at, not everyone, of course, they're children who live in families that are very aware and that are already switching to a more whole foods diet. But many children overall, if you look at them, all they eat really is a mixture of white flour, sugar, oil, and dairy. 
in different variations, mm-hmm. you know, as a breakfast cereal, as a white sandwich with some cheese, a pizza, some pasta with cheese, maybe a bit of tomato sauce on it, mm. a donut, a cookie, a muffin. So it's not healthy. You yeah. know, we need yeah. to eat real food. And number one is vegetables. Yeah. I want to get on to the, the what we can be doing about mm. it, but I just want to reflect on where we're at because some of those, I mean, both you and I have been involved with the Mind Foundation uh, uh, over many years, and some of the statistics are quite frightening. I, I wonder if you might share some of those statistics with our... Well, you know, like I've heard the one in three allergies, one in four asthma. You know, mm, I mean, yeah. ADHD is a pretty big problem. Yeah, up to 10% of children in Australia are diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. Allergies, we are the asthma capital of the world here. Mm. You know, no other country has as much asthma amongst teenagers as we do. And children still die from asthma. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really tragic. We also have have now the statistics coming from the states that one in 38 children with autism wow now we did know? a program on this i did a program on this about five years ago or three years ago and it was one in 50 at that point and mm. it just seems to be getting worse and worse yeah. a lot of people say it's about diagnosis people are being do you what, what do you say to that yeah. i mean well i mean there that people looked into that you know yes. because at first of course everybody said it, it has to be just better picking up of children you know more services available so more people want to diagnosis but um the studies that have been done to look into it say clearly yes there is better diagnosis earlier diagnosis but there is also a real true increase. Mm. And most likely, so the even the CDC in America now says the the biggest part of an autism diagnosis and the the rise in the in the autism diagnosis is the environment. So mm. it's toxins in the environment. Yeah. Yeah, well, CDC is the Centre for Disease Control. Yes, that's right. That's right. Now, you know, when people, there's another term that's come to mind for me. And when people hear the term pandas, they think of some cuddly bear in China. But as a paediatrician, it has a very different meaning to you. Tell me about P-A-N-D-A-S, pandas. <laughs> Yeah, I've just returned actually from the United States from a conference that had a whole day on pandas because it is increasing as well. It's one of those autoimmune diseases that are on the rise. So it stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neurological Disease Associated with Strep, Streptococci. Wow, okay. So what happens with pandas is that a child gets a strep infection, so that's maybe a strep throat, and within a few weeks, very suddenly, their behavior changes. They become very anxious, very OCD, obsessive compulsive mm-hmm. and repetitive. And sometimes they also have tics. So they may have facial tics where their eyes blink or maybe their whole arm moves. You know, it's just unusual movements that they don't really have control over. They also very typically start wetting themselves again, which they didn't before. Mm-hmm. And it's usually in kids before they hit teenage years. So, you know, the n- normal age, around 8, 9, 10, 11, something like that. Um, is this nighttime wetting? Or, no, it's or just daytime. daytime. Wow. Yeah, okay. daytime, sometimes nighttime as well. But so losing typically control daytime, of really. Absolutely. And the handwriting changes abruptly. So kids who were able to write quite nicely before, all of a sudden can't write, you can't barely read what they're writing anymore. So those are kind of some typical symptoms for that disease. And it is an autoimmune disease where your body tries to fight the strep infection by making antibodies. That's our immune system fighting the infection. And unfortunately, the antibodies also attack parts of the brain that for some reason look similar to the strep to cocci, to the bacteria on their surface. And so there's inflammation in the brain and these children become, in a way, mentally ill. You know, if you like, I don't like that term, but, you know, they really are um, very unwell and some kids can't leave the home anymore. They have severe separation anxiety. They are very repetitive. They have to check 10 times that the oven is turned off and that everything is okay. They're, they see things sometimes, you know. And the amazing thing is you can treat it. You give these children, I mean, I do not like giving antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And we clearly have mm-hmm. a problem in the whole um, developed world of using too many antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I do use them because within, usually within 10 days, two weeks, the child is 
back to their normal self, you wow. know, their usual self. And so the antibiotics get rid of the strep, and then you really need to work on improving the immune system. Yeah. You know, so yeah. um, making sure that their immune uh, vitamin D level is fine, that they have enough zinc, that yeah. um, they're not um, eating foods that inflame their whole immune system any further. Is the, is the condition, I mean, it's a real, is it a relatively new condition? Has it been around mm. for a long time? Is it on, mm. on the rise? I mean, yeah. what's, the, what's the trends? Well, it's probably been around for a long time, but not been diagnosed. So mm. I don't know whether you've heard of rheumatic heart disease, sure. which is exactly the same thing. But in that case, the antibodies that we produce against the strep don't attack the brain, but attack the heart. And so destroy, actually, part of the heart. And kids who have that, called rheumatic fever, they need to be on antibiotics until they are 21 years old because there's such a high risk of a recurrence and further destruction of their heart valve that then if we don't want to take that risk, we mm, keep them on antibiotics. Mm. And in rheumatic fever... Some kids need actually a new valve. They need a heart valve replacement surgery, which is terrible. Yeah. There are also people who get um, their kidneys get affected, you know, glomerulonephritis after strep infection. So there are different ones. They've all been around for a long time. But um, I think pandas is, um, and then there's one more called Sydenham's Chorea. Hang on, hang on. It's called? Sydenham's Chorea. Chorea, okay. Where the kids um, make kind of weird movements of their whole body, their arms. They can't can't walk. They're really, you know, it's very unusual. Also, sudden onset after streptococcal infection. Mm. So... The pandas is kind of the newest in the club, you know, that's the diagnosis that hasn't really hit the mainstream yet. I mean, there's research and the, at the National Institutes of Health in America has been, the research has been done for 20, 25 years. Mm. And one of the big um, heroes of that is Sue Suedo, a um, pediatrician at NIH. And she's really brought this pandas to the other doctors. You know, mm. many still mm. haven't heard of it, but mm. it is a real yeah. illness and there's a lot of research on it. What is the incidence? What sort of, what do they, what do they estimate? It's a I difficult one to put on. I actually on. don't know mm. what the incidence mm. is. It's, um, yeah. I don't know that we even have statistics on that. Yeah. But pandas is, is, is one condition, but far more commonly, and you mentioned that Australia was the allergy capital of the world, um, why do you think that is? What, what is it about Australia that uh, makes us so special? <laughs> well, it's a or wonderful country. I love it. Yes, yes. <laughs> so for allergies, I think um, one thing is that, well, if you start, I mean, I always love to think what is the best way of preparing a child for a healthy life? Hmm. Yeah? And you start before the birth, you know, with yep. the mother having um good nutrition during the pregnancy but also taking enough vitamin d mm. we know that there's a very high vi- rate of vitamin d deficiency or insufficiency where it's just not good enough the vitamin d even in australia yeah. our sunny country so very important that the mother makes sure she gets vit- enough vitamin d enough folate and sometimes um and you know just a healthy diet there are other supplements like I always recommend probiotics in the pregnancy as well to prepare her gut flora for the birth mm-hmm. because we now know that the gut flora is really essential for your immune system. About 70 to 80 percent of our immune system sits in the gut and it is controlled by the bacteria, the millions of bacteria that live in our gut. We have about between one and two kilograms of bacteria that grow in our gut and we couldn't live without them mm-hmm. they um they digest some of our food for us they produce enzymes they produce some vitamins they even produce neurotransmitters yeah, so mm-hmm. it's really there is um, an explosion of research into how the gut flora affects not just our immune system but even our brain and mm-hmm. behavior but back to the immune system and allergies So we want a good gut flora. We want that baby to be born naturally. And when the baby comes through the birth canal, it swallows the mom's gut flora. So we want that to be a good gut flora. Mm. Unfortunately, a lot of children are born by C-section. Some hospitals have a 25 to 30% C-section rate. And just yesterday, I saw a mom who had a baby in C-section. I said, tell me, why was the baby born by C-section? I'm always interested. And, you know, of course, there are true emergencies and there, I'm very glad that we have C-sections available because it does save lives. But in this case was, um, 
the doctor just thought the baby may be a bit too big for me and I was a bit older and so we just got the baby out um, two weeks early. So the problem with that is that this baby is not going to have a good gut flora. Babies who are born by C-section, their gut flora resembles the skin flora, so the bacteria that grow on the skin of the hospital workers. Oh, wow. So it's completely different. Oh, okay. yeah? Yeah. And that, of course, causes inflammation in the gut because that's not the kind of bacteria you're supposed to have yeah. in your gut. Then the next thing is that because that baby was born two weeks early and the mom's body wasn't ready to go into labor, she didn't produce breast milk. Mm-hmm. So this baby didn't get breast milk. Now, that's another big insult to the immune system. Yeah. We know that when babies are breastfed, um, first of all, it promotes a really good gut flora. There are special growth factors for bifidobacteria, which are the predominant bacteria in a baby's gut, in breast milk. So when you drink breast milk, you, produce, you, you have a beautiful gut flora. So there are some probiotics in gut flora. Um, in, 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 in breast, breast milk. milk. There breast are, milk. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. are also probiotics in breast milk. The, the, we used to think that breast milk was sterile, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So there are bacteria that go through the breast milk. But the baby's um, has some bacteria in the gut, and mm. then the breast milk promotes the growth of those nice bacteria, the mm-hmm. ones we want. <laughs> and also, um, the breast milk itself also has lots and lots of different growth factors for the immune system. So we know that children, the longer they're breastfed, the less likely they are to have allergies. Mm-hmm. And the recommendation is to breastfeed exclusively for six months. And that's really important. A lot of babies here start eating around four months, four and a half months. And it's not, the babies are not ready. Their immune systems are not ready at that time to take food. They really should be getting only breast milk. Hmm. What about going back to the C-section, because it is so common. Um, I mean, is a, it would a vaginal swab and then introducing it into the oral cavity, would that be, is that, does that sound too simple? Or That's that, actually being done. Right, okay, wow. <laughs> but so, but that would... Yeah. Makes sense. Or what, what should what should these twenty five percent or thirty percent of women who and who are having C sections? I mean, what should they be doing to compensate for yeah. that? Yeah. So first of all, a lot of hospitals do that now. They put a swab in the mother's vagina, and right after birth, they take that and and swab around the mouth of the baby, or mm-hmm. even swab the mum's nipples. And mm-hmm. then when the baby starts breastfeeding, it gets some of that yeah. good flora. The other thing I always recommend is to give the baby probiotics. So we can buy probiotics that are made specifically for babies. Mm-hmm. And you get them as a powder. And the mother can either just dip her finger in that and put the finger in the baby's mouth or express a little bit of breast milk and mix a quarter teaspoon of those good probiotics into there and give it to the baby in a syringe or something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, and I that always should recommend go on that. for how long? Well... Um, I would say the longer the better. You know, mm. I mean, you're only seeding. It's it's like giving little seeds of good bacteria mm-hmm. to your baby. Mm. So you're not really um, completely changing the gut flora in a, in a week or two. You know, that's why I think it's a good idea to keep doing it for at least two months, three mm. months. And then if the baby is perfectly fine, breastfed, has a, you know, poos nicely and mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. those nice um, breastfed poos that don't smell and have little curdles in them, then you can probably stop. It won't hurt, as far as we know, to mm-hmm. to give a little bit from time to time. And again, especially if the mom or the baby need antibiotics. Yes. So that's the other hit that we have against our gut flora is that we have a lot of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So some moms get antibiotics during the birth, especially if they get a C-section. Mm-hmm. Some get it after birth is for that, whatever reason. Is that reason. given with the C-section as just a preventive yes, measure in case, yes. in case of infection? Yeah, because infection rate would be probably quite high if it, they didn't get the antibiotics, mm-hmm. you know. So, it, I mean, yeah. it's a huge operation, yes, you know. No, I, I know. mean, it's not a it's not it's, an little little no, cut. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a major abdominal mm-hmm. incision, and uh, gosh, I know. I, I mean, my wife went through it, my both and my daughter mm-hmm. went through it as well. So, mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with that, and and it's interesting to hear some of the challenges that come from it. Yeah, a lot less known. We we didn't talk about it 30 years ago. Well, definitely not. You no. know, it was nobody was giving probiotics mm. 30 years ago hmm. except in germany yes. where i'm from so what? probiotics been been used there for a long long time because back to that pandas which has this strep infection which requires antibiotics and in fact whenever anybody has antibiotics what length of time should what would be the regime for probiotics like if you were taking three antibiotics a day for seven to ten days 
Should you be taking probiotics while you're taking the antibiotics? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, it's a good question because, you know, when you're taking antibiotics, you're obviously going to kill some of those probiotics. But when you're taking antibiotics, you're changing your gut flora completely. And I think if you give some good bacteria during that time, it is still a good idea. Mm. And you should continue that probably for three weeks afterwards. So once you've stopped the course antibiotics, of antibiotics. I would continue for three weeks because it takes a while to replenish mm. the gut with good bacteria. What I always recommend is once the kids are old enough to eat, to give them fermented foods. That's really your natural way of getting probiotics, apart from eating dirt. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah, which and a lot of kids do. A lot of kids do. And if it's clean dirt, <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's, <laughs> if there's such a yeah, thing, I mean, yeah. if there's no lead in it yeah, and yeah. no arsenic yeah. and no pesticides, you know, it's actually good for their gut flora. Mm, mm. And the wonderful Maya should treat Klein, a pediatrician from New York, is coming to the Mind, to the Mind Forum, Forum. And she is going to present her book, um, The Dirt Cure, which... Mm-hmm. It's all about that, about mm-hmm. eating dirt, basically. Because we've become so mm-hmm. preoccupied with... Mm-hmm. We have this adversarial approach to bacteria. We have for 100 years, mm-hmm. but now it's gone to the crazy part where everything is antibacterial, killing 99% of the... I mean, that to some degree could be part of what's going on with our allergies, couldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. That is a big problem, that people disinfect too much, you know? Yeah. I mean, one thing is that even if you disinfect your kitchen those really bad bacteria come back within half an hour mm. so you're not really disinfecting your kitchen anyway but um it it we are living in an in an environment that is too clean for our immune system children who grow up on farms who grow up with dogs who are quite dirty mm-hmm. <laughs> um but cuddly um have a better immune system they have a lower risk of getting allergies so it's really important to expose kids to good germs you mm. know um, of course you don't want to expose your child to you know any terrible to salmonella or things like mm. that you know but the other actually interesting thing is you know we used to talk just about the microbiome in the gut as the microbiome is all the bacteria growing in our gut we, we now realize it's not just bacteria you know we probably have about 500 different species of bacteria in our gut that are fighting all for survival, you know, mm. and um, all have their roles to play in our immune system. But we also have lots of different viruses and even parasites that have evolved with us and that have an effect on our immune system. Mm. So there are some kind of weird treatments out there now that um, I just heard about at a conference in the States where children who with really severe allergies, for example, are given some worm eggs from mm-hmm. a beetle that can't grow they can't they can't reproduce in humans but they just dampen down the immune system enough that these kids overcome their allergies mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it sounds very weird, and I'm not sure many people would be willing to take yeah. worm eggs. But the other thing is also a lot of research on probiotics and allergies, food allergies. Mm-hmm. You know, the, at Stanford University, they're giving children lactobacillus, rhamnosus, and tiny, tiny amounts of the food they're allergic to, for example, peanut. And then they slowly increase the amount of peanuts, and the children mm. can eat it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. out, and after a year or two, they're no longer allergic. So I think yeah. that's a fantastic area of research. Mm. I'm really looking forward to what Well, they're even talking them. about, they even uh, talk about fecal uh, you know, implants, isn't it? So taking the feces from mm. from healthy individuals and implanting it into the colon of of not so healthy and getting some positive results there. So I think we're heading into a whole new area of yeah. I mean, fecal transplants are now the standard of care for older people with Clostridia infections in the hospital. Wow. Because okay. these people would die, you know, if you yeah. if if an older person has a clostridia infection, that, which you usually get after having had too many antibiotics, because mm-hmm. all your good gut flora is destroyed, and the clostridia are so sturdy, they mm. survive anything. Yeah. So there's nothing, no antibiotic that works anymore, sometimes. And then the only thing that works is actually giving them a fecal transplant. And there is um, a doctor in... Sydney, who even does it for people with Crohn's disease, mm. you know, inflammatory bowel disease. And he has done research to show that those patients are doing very, very well. Yeah, and he's been doing it for a long time. I think I know who you're talking about, Thomas Brody, isn't Brody, it? Brody, that's Brody, right, that's yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that'd be an interesting discussion to have too. <clears throat> On to the, some of the mental health issues, because you mentioned ADHD, and that's an incredible statistic. One in 10 
kids with ADHD and the autism as well. There are some common themes, though, that run through them. You mentioned vitamin D. And, and actually, when I go down to the beach and I look at people wrapping their child up in, I mean, with the best vitamin D still... What is it? The sun? Yeah, I mean, we are supposed to get our vitamin D from the sunshine. And whenever I post something on my Facebook page about how, you know, vitamin D deficiency is rampant and mm. we should give vitamin D to children, especially in the winter, people say, but it should be natural. And I totally agree. Mm. It should be. But if you look at it, we have evolved at the equator where, you know, all year round you have the same intensity of sunshine, quite intense. Mm. And we evolved there, you know, a long time ago. And used to live with wearing out wearing clothes. So there was a lot of sun exposure. And we were outdoors all day. And when you look at how we live today, we live far away from the equator, where the sun is just not strong enough in the winter to produce vitamin D in our skin. Mm -hmm. And we spend most of our time indoors. And we wear clothes when we go outside. Now, I do agree that we have to protect our children from sunburn. Mm. I mean, the sun yes. here is too strong and yeah. we have a very, very high rate of skin cancer from children being sunburned as children. Mm. Yeah, so that that's really a big risk factor. So we have to make sure that doesn't happen. But we also need to get some sunshine. Mm. And I always say, you know, usually before 10 a.m., after 4 or 5 p.m., the sun isn't strong enough anymore to burn your skin. You can get a UV meter mm. at any, you know, you can buy it online or at the... Um, um, and at a shop, but also you can get an app on your phone that tells you of how course. strong the UV is, <laughs> right. how long you need to stay in the sun, mm -hmm. you know, at whatever yeah. time to get enough sunshine to make vitamin D. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Yes, you know? yes, yes, <laughs> a yeah. very useful app. Yeah. So, yeah, so vitamin D is incredibly important. If you had low in vitamin D, you get more infections, you get more allergies, more asthma, more eczema. Um, and more cancer, more, more other cancer, cancers. Cancer, yes, absolutely. Autoimmune so, diseases, So ironic, MS. isn't it? I mean, let's stay out of the sun mm. to protect us from skin cancer. And yes, mm. the skin cancer rates have gone down, but in the process, all these other things that rely on vitamin mm. D have gone through the roof. Yeah. yeah, if you look at the European countries that are as far away from the equator as we are, just to the north rather than the south, mm. They have public health policy to give all children, at least in the first two years, vitamin D mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a drop or as a tablet. And it's a daily dose. So yeah. that, I think that's really important to remember that you shouldn't, you know, I mean, there, once in a while there's a study that comes out that says vitamin D doesn't help, doesn't work. Mm. And when you look at the study, usually it's either a much too small dose that just wouldn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. You know, if you give someone who's vitamin D deficient 400 units a day, that's just not going to touch it. Mm. Or they're giving it once a month or once a year even. You know, they mm. do studies mm -hmm. where they give older people huge injections of vitamin D once a year, and that's just not your natural. It's like mm. eating once a year a huge mm. amount mm. and then hoping that the rest of the year will be healthy. It's just not going yeah. to happen. What, uh, I mean, what is a, what's a normal figure for, you know, because people don't get their vitamin D levels checked in their blood tests. And I remember doing another program on this very subject and had never had my vitamin D levels checked. Well, I went and got them checked and I was clearly vitamin D deficient. Wow. Very, 30. Mm. My, my, oh my so, so the normal rating to put a figure on it is what? Somewhere between 40 and... What, what's the thing? No, figures? no. So below 50 is deficient. Okay. Below 80 is insufficient. Okay. And the optimal is about 120. So if you look at the Maasai who live in Africa mm -hmm. near the equator mm -hmm. without wearing too many clothes and yep. spending most of their time outside the way we evolved, their level is about 120 to 150. Mm. And that's a really good level. Now, when you check, well, I check all my, almost every one of my mm. patients, I yep. check their vitamin D level because I think it is so incredibly yes. important to know because you don't want to overdose. And at the end of summer, which is right now, we're now at the end of March, your vitamin D level should be about 150 naturally. 150. If you've spent enough time outdoors, and the children I check now who do spend lots of time yeah. outdoors, yeah. you know, and have a nice tan, they naturally, without taking any supplements, have a really good level. Yeah. But that's a minority. Most yeah. kids are already low now, and we know that whatever the level is now, from now on, it's going to go down, down, down yeah. well, every week. I'm feeling weak. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> when it's important for your bones too, Absol you know. Well, that's, and, and, and actually, your mood. I, with if you've had a diagnosis of cancer, mm. it's even more important, isn't it? Absolutely, I mean, and, yeah. And that's uh, 
So golly, 120, my 30 is a shocker. I mean, it's a wonder that I even can stand up and survive. But it was probably like that. What I reflected on it was I had this test done, never had it done before, and I'm sure it's been like that for 20 or 30 years because nothing else had changed. Wow. So that is really, that's really scary and even more so to hear you say 120. But anyway, that's okay. We're gonna, we, we, so we can get the sun, we can get supplements, the supplements should be taken regularly and they should be of sufficient dose to make a difference. Yes, and I think um, especially in the winter, especially mm-hmm. in pregnancy, especially while breastfeeding, that those are the most important times to really make sure you're taking yeah. vitamin D. In the summer, if you're healthy and you're, you do spend time outside, you don't have to take a supplement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I've heard that uh, vitamin D and thyroid hormone are the two ones that impact on almost every cell mm-hmm. in the body. Yeah. So absolutely critical. Wow. Um, you mentioned vitamin D. We've mentioned uh, what. So there are some other common themes uh, in problems of these mental health issues. You've mentioned vitamin D is one. Um, you mentioned the mic, the gut. Microbiome is another. What are some other issues that that people should be looking out for? Well, I think another really important one is environmental toxins. Mm. So, what I do when I see a child with a new diagnosis, let's say ADHD, um, I want to check that there isn't something that kind of mimics. ADHD. For example, if you have lead in your blood, your behavior will be just like a child with ADHD. But in fact, what you have is lead poisoning. Mm. Same thing with mercury. Mm. And I check a lot of children and I do get quite a few high levels back, you know, especially if children um, eat a lot of fish, large fish like catfish and kingfish and tuna. tuna, you know, they can have very high mercury levels. And I have had patients who had a diagnosis of autism and had a sky high level of mercury. And then I tested the rest of the family. They were all very high. They were all unwell. Mm. We got rid of the fish. And over a few months, the mercury levels went down and the, the autism was gone. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And with ADHD, the same with lead. Yeah. Then iron deficiency. It's very common nowadays for children to be iron deficient. And um, one of the reasons is that a lot of babies are being put on reflux medication, you know, reflux, if they're medication. reflux medication, which, you know, if the baby is very irritable. So we're talking you know, about things like Nexium or Losec, or Losec yeah, Nexium, yeah. these Zantac. protein pump inhibitors at a young age. Yeah, from, from a few weeks of age, because, you know, the baby does cry and is upset, but I mean, pediatricians, most pediatricians realize that the number one reason for that is that they are sensitive to something the mother, the breastfeeding mother, is eating, and usually it's dairy. Mm-hmm. If the mom takes dairy out of her diet, in 80% of cases, the baby's fine. There's no more wow. crying, no more reflex, baby much more settled. Yes. But, you know, it hasn't trickled down to everybody, so a lot of babies are still put on this medication, yes. which reduces the acidity in their stomach. But that acidity in the stomach is actually needed to absorb iron and B12. Mm. And if you don't absorb iron B12, you become iron deficient, B12 deficient, which Mm. has an effect on your brain development. Wow. And in the longer term, kids with ADHD. So if a child is iron deficient and can't concentrate and hyperactive, has trouble sleeping, you can just beautifully treat that by giving that child some iron rather than Mm. a medication Mm. that suppresses their hyperactivity. And they do fine. Yeah. So, you know, so there are certain um, uh, nutrients that kids can be low in that then show up as something that looks like ADHD. Mm. Now, ADHD, this diagnosis is anyway diagnosed. It's totally subjective. Yes. You know, it's just So based. there's no blood test to, to the, say, oh, you've got ADHD. There is no blood test. Mm. It's not like diabetes, you know, where mm-hmm. you say, oh, look, your blood sugar is high. You mm. know, and not like that. So it's really, it's how does a child behave in two different settings. So let's say home and school. Mm-hmm. If they're hyperactive, they don't pay attention, they don't finish their work, they're... Um, uh, don't get along with the other kids, you know, interrupt them, you get the diagnosis if you if you match enough of the mm, <laughs> the mm. points. And um, often they're put on a medication, but the real treatment should be looking at, do they have enough iron, enough zinc? You know, zinc is very, very important for brain processing and for your frustration tolerance and for concentration. And zinc's, zinc deficiency is very common. Very common in Australia yeah, because I mean, our, our soils, soils are so low. Yeah. Yeah. Soils are low in selenium, zinc, magnesium. 
and iodine. And iodine, which is one of the, which I another I learned so much from the people I talked to, Lala. <laughs> but you know, another one was that iodine is the biggest deficiency in the world. Yeah, and that affects children's development. You know, that's the most preventable cause of developmental delays and intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Iodine deficiencies. How should we be getting in this day and age our iodine? Well, you know, the recommendation actually is now that pregnant mothers take iodine as a supplement during the whole pregnancy because the risk is so high that they're not getting it from their diet. Um, There are foods that are high in iodine, for example, seaweed. Yep. You know, and a lot of kids I know love to eat seaweed mm, snacks. You mm. know, I don't understand why they're so expensive. You know, mm-hmm. you pay five dollars I mean, for a tiny little yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> box of seaweed. Yeah. Um, so uh, seaweed is a great source. Um, you can get iodized salt, but mm-hmm. you know you'd have to have a lot of salt to meet your iodine requirement. Mm-hmm. So I think eating um, that, and then for selenium, uh, Brazil nuts uh-huh. are a really good uh-huh. source. So having a Brazil nut a day for adults, three Brazil nuts will meet your requirements. Wow. Um, the other thing I was mentioning was the zinc. Mm, yeah. You know, zinc. The, when if you want to check for yourself, look at your fingernails and see uh-huh. if you have white spots on white your fingernails. If you have white spots, you're quite likely to be either zinc deficient or selenium deficient. With zinc, you usually get smaller little spots and selenium larger spots. And a lot of the kids I see who come with a diagnosis of ADHD have those spots. Mm. And then I check the blood levels and it's low and we give them zinc. And within a few weeks, they start um, Mm. being less frustrated, more even, can concentrate better. All of those things. And one more nutrient that I think is very, very important is omega-3. So, and that is one actually that most pediatricians nowadays will give kids with a diagnosis of ADHD, a high dose omega-3 supplement that has EPA and DHA. Those Mm -hmm, are the mm -hmm. two essential fatty acids that we can't really produce ourselves. Mm -hmm. Usually we get them from fish. Yeah. I am vegetarian, so I don't use fish. I use algae oil, Mm -hmm. which is where the fish get their omega-3 mm-hmm. from. So they eat algae to get that. And it's a really much cleaner way of getting yeah. your omega-3 because you don't... Um, the fish, as you said, are contaminated mm. with mercury and PCB and dioxins. Yeah. So to get a clean fish oil, it has to be molecularly distilled. That makes it very expensive. Yeah. And now we have more and more brands that are producing algae oil. And um, there's also something you can check on your body. So if your child has on their upper outer arms very dry skin that feels a bit like sandpaper, mm-hmm. that's often a sign that they don't have enough omega-3, omega-3. in mm-hmm. their body. And actually, hardly anybody has enough omega-3. I mean, they've done mm. studies because we eat too many other fats that are not healthy, you know, yeah. all those hydrogenated yes. oils and yes. baking. And Well, we've been told to by so many, you know, authorities to go stay away from animal fats and focus more on the vegetable oils mm. and the vegetable oils are higher in omega-6 aren't they is that, is that yeah i mean i personally only use olive oil yep you know that's definitely yes. a healthy that's oil a good one. Yep. um sometimes i use a bit of coconut oil but mm-hmm. i've i mean i used to have more of it but now with the new studies i'm not eating it by the teaspoon anymore <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> not that i ever did but yeah. um, i think olive oil is really the best and i eat um fresh nuts and seeds mm. and they are healthy yeah. you know they yeah. not only give you good oils but they also give you magnesium which mm. is really important mm-hmm. To be calm and relaxed yes. and happy, and but then you really need the omega three. So some people say, "Oh, I just want to have flaxseed." That's okay, but we don't. You would have to actually do a test on yourself, either a genetic test or a biochemical test, to see how much of that flaxseed you convert into the DHA and EPA, mm-hmm. the essential fatty acids, because some people are just not very good at that. Mm-hmm. So they would have to drink like a liter of flaxseed oil yeah, to make yeah, enough. Yeah. So is is vegetarian? Uh you know, is there a likelihood of a higher copper issue in vegetarians than zinc? Is that a, is that an issue or no? Not, Not really. really. So no. the okay. the issue with zinc and copper is that they're a bit like a seesaw. Mm. So when the zinc is low, the copper goes high, mm-hmm. and that's not good because no. the low zinc makes you easily frustrated mm. and the high copper makes you explosive mm. and that's kind of the typical child <laughs> that yeah, comes to yeah. my clinic you yeah, know yeah, really yeah. um on edge and then explodes and then if you give zinc the copper comes down nicely just mm. by giving mm. enough zinc and i haven't seen that vegetarian kids okay. are higher in copper 
It must be so interesting in your clinic compared to, you know, because I imagine there are some doctors that will look at this child and try to work out what medication will balance their neurology, you know, their behavior out. And you're looking at it and going, hmm, just wonder what nutrients there are. And people don't realize that, that is such a, there is such a strong connection between what we're eating and the, and the, and the behavior. Absolutely. It's a huge area of research now. Mm. You know, for example, also just if you look at food, you know, additives in food are clearly causing hyperactive behavior mm. in some children, not in all of them. And so, like, for example, the color 102, the orange, and some lollies and drinks, and 202, the preservative, can make children who are n not even children with a diagnosis of ADHD, without the diagnosis, makes them hyperactive if they have that. You know, they've done mm -hmm. studies where they have taken two groups of children and they, um, and they kind of did a party scenario, birthday party, and one group got... Um, the 102 and 202 in their drink and the other one got a drink that looked the same, tasted the same, but didn't have those additives in it. And within an hour, <laughs> the kids in the additive group were wild, uncoordinated, fighting, mm, you know, mm. and the others were playing happily and yes. cooperatively. Yeah. So it's we know that that's happening and a lot of parents are aware of that now and cut out the additives out of their diet. That's always my very, very first recommendation. Yeah. Just get rid of the additives. You don't need those. They're not good for you. Mm. They don't do anything for you. Mm. They just make the food look more enticing so that you'll buy it. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. But it's not good for you. Now, <clears throat> you are also a lactation specialist and you've already mentioned that some some things there. I think the other thing that a lot of mothers, families, parents aren't aware of is that when the child's response is one of, of, of reflux, that it's so often related to what the mother's eating mm, and that yeah. that can change. So now you mentioned dairy as being a problem. Are there other foods that mothers should be looking out for that are commonly causing problems in lactation? Well, I really don't like mothers to restrict themselves too much. You know, there I have some moms who come and they're already eating only like three foods because they think they mm -hmm. were told so many different kinds mm -hmm. of foods by different people that may be a problem that they just don't eat anything anymore. But in general, I would say look at your family and see if you yourself, the father of the baby or anyone in the family has sensitivities to food. The more common ones would be the common allergens, so egg, soy, wheat, corn, hmm. nuts, but they may not be a problem, you know. Um, we used to be big on not eating cabbage and, you know, foods that could make the baby bloated, but I don't really see that that much. I think if the baby has a good gut flora hmm. and um, then really it is usually foods, and dairy in particular, it's that um, we are not evolved to drink the milk from a different species, you know. Mm. So babies' immune systems are not equipped to deal with cow's milk protein. Some yeah. are okay, you know. Yeah. Some yeah. children yeah. have, you know, especially if you come from, I don't know, Denmark or Norway, you kind of have a, those people from there have kind of adjusted genetically to living near with cattle and drinking milk. But a lot of us are not. And so I've, I would say number dairy is really the number one. And if you take that out and then do a few things for your baby, like holding them upright a lot. You know, we, we don't hold our babies enough anymore, I mm -hmm. think. I love it when I go for a walk in Bondi and see, you know, the babies in the front packs, in the, papooses, the moms and dads the yeah. carrying them. It's so wonderful because we're just holding them, you yeah. know, yeah. and not having them lying flat on a stroller. And, yeah. and even at home, you know, I mean, I always had a sling mm -hmm. and I had my babies in the sling and I walked around and did all the things I needed to do yeah. and they were sleeping in there and then they were breastfeeding in yeah, there yeah. and well, then just pulled out. Their yeah. whole life up to that point, pretty exactly. close in that position. Yeah, so. I love that um, the practice in Bali, they don't let the babies touch the floor for the first six months. Yeah. So they're always yeah. held by someone. I yes. think that's so wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I once read a book called The Continuum Concept. Oh, I love that book. Well, me too. <laughs> I'm going to have a word with my wife about that because she wasn't so crazy about it. I got, you know, Anyway, so that's a whole other program. Listen, um, if we were going to reflect now on, and give our listener some hints, you know, mm -hmm. they've, they've got a young child or they've got children and they're, they're wanting to, um, you know, ensure that they're at the best of health. What, what sort of 
What would be two or three or four or five hints? Okay, so so my um, short list of getting your child on the path of optimal health is number one that you give them real food. Hmm. Okay, so that you buy, that you eat lots of vegetables. If you look at the plate, it should be half filled with vegetables. A quarter should be your starchy um, foods, and a quarter should be your protein. And the less meat, the better. Mm-hmm. In the long run and in the short run. Um, So that's number one, real food, whole foods. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two would be to get enough sleep. I think Mm -hmm. we forget about Mm -hmm. how important sleep is. There is no way that a child can concentrate or be happy or have a healthy immune system if they are sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. So we really, really need to look at that. And one of the things that we do far too much is have the children play with screens. Mm -hmm. And the color of the screen, the blue color, actually interferes with the production of melatonin. When you look at that blue screen, it hit the blue color, the blue light hits your retina, the back of your eyes, and stops you from producing the hormone melatonin, Mm -hmm. which you need to produce to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. need to make sure the kids sleep enough and don't spend too much time on screens. And then avoiding environmental toxins. Um, I am actually just sending out a newsletter, I think this weekend, to everyone and anyone can sign up to it on my website or look on my blog. And that has a checklist on what you can do to reduce toxins in your child's environment. And that's really a step-by-step. I mean, simple things like taking your shoes off when you come into the house. Because whenever you come in, your shoes will have pesticides on the soles. They have all kinds of bad things on them. Mm -hmm. So that's a really simple one. Um, And getting rid of all the chemical cleaners. You know, just get rid of them. Whatever you use to clean your house, traces of that will be found in your food. So do you really want to eat a little bit of some horrible chemical that you mm. use to clean your windows? No, yeah. you don't. Yeah. And a, a study that just came out a week or two ago showed that if you use a spray cleaner, it is as bad for you as if you smoked a pack of cigarettes. Wow. So we really should get rid of this. The WHO, the World Health Organization, recommended after that study to get rid of spray cleaners. Mm. So number one, food. Number two, sleep. Number three, environmental toxins. And number four, I would say, is um, a really healthy lifestyle. So lots of time spent outdoors, lots of time spent active and in green environments. Mm. So even for ADHD, there's now um, a a treatment that is called um, green time. So where the children just spend time in green spaces and it calms them down, they concentrate better, they're more creative after a walk in the woods or a play on the playground that's surrounded by green. Mm. So really that's very, very important. So I think those four things would be my basis yeah. for good health. And, and, if, and they're not that difficult no. to do. I mean, it does take a bit of time if you are not on on that path already, but it's not that difficult. You know, just really looking back at how did we grow up? How did our parents grow up? And, you know, what? why were they so much healthier in a mm, way? Mm, you know, mm. I mean, not all of them, of course, but um, I think that's just back to the basics. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Listen, just finally, I just want to take a step back from your specialty as a pediatrician and lactation specialist. And say and ask you this question: what, what do you think people? And you've covered some of it already. But what do you think people's biggest challenge is today on their health journey in our modern world? You know, as they work through life. You know, what do you think the biggest challenge is? The biggest challenge, well, I think, is eating real food, really, because mm-hmm. it makes such a huge difference. I mean, you are bombarded with advertisements for foods that aren't processed. If you go to the supermarket, ninety percent of the food you can buy there is processed, full of additives. Is just, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, a mixture of processed white flour and some Mm. unhealthy oil and dairy and sugar, you know. So if you just buy the food that people, the advertisement tells you to buy, you're going to eat unhealthy food and that will cause all kinds of health problems. You Mm. know, we do know that, you know, blood pressure, heart disease, um, cancer, autoimmune diseases, all of those have to do with diet to some degree, you know. And um, and I think stress is the other big one, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. not just adults are stressed, children are stressed already, you know, and it's probably because the parents are stressed, mm. you know. I mean, I see it so often that if, a, if parents are very, very stressed, and I mean, they have good reasons to be stressed, you know, life is expensive, you work hard, um, 
there may be, you know, you may have to take care of your parents with Alzheimer's at the same time as you have little children, you know, this kind of sandwich generation. There's so many reasons to be stressed. And I think we really need to find a better life work balance, get more community around us so that we can somehow reduce the stress and 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 not get our children to already start on that path of being stressed from very young, you know, allowing them to play, allowing them some f just free time and maybe even to be bored from time to time. We know that when children are bored, they actually come up with really creative ways yeah. of entertaining themselves. Uh, and we schedule them nowadays so much, you know, they have mm. so much homework and then they go to all their after school activities. And of course, we want them to be well-rounded human beings and have had some music and some exercise and all these different things that we want to provide with, for them after school. But the most important thing for a young child is to play. Mm. That's how they mm. learn. Yeah. And that's how they de-stress, mm. you know, so we need to give them that time. And maybe for adults, it's the same thing. Maybe they need to play more. Yeah, fantastic. Lala, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to have links, of course, to your webpage mm -hmm. and, and uh, we look forward to talking again. Thank you, Ron. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We will, of course, have those links to Dr. Lila Mason's website and her wonderful book, Children's Health A to Z, which incidentally is also available as an e-book. Lila and I have, uh, we're very proud to support and present at this annual Mind Forum. It's the 10th annual Mind Forum in May 2018 at the University of New South Wales here in Sydney. Now, Mind, M-I-N-D-D, stands for Metabolic, Immunological, Neurological, Digestive and Developmental Conditions, which the forum always has two streams, one for health practitioners and the other for the public, and they are always sold-out events. Um, but now, in case you... And they're always great, full of great information. So this year, uh, this is the first time, if you missed out on the public stream, it's also available online, and, and we'll have links to that online um, online streaming which you you know recordings of the forum are great to watch now if you've enjoyed this or for the, that matter any of our other podcasts spread the word share it with friends and family it's an important message about personal empowerment taking control of your health and your environment the two are inseparable and above all building resilience physical mental and emotional resilience so with that in mind until next week this is dr ron ehrlich be well this podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine health and related subjects the content is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or as a substitute for care by a qualified medical practitioner. If you or any other person has a medical concern, he or she should consult with an appropriately qualified medical practitioner. Guests who speak in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions.